Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. How's it going, everyone? Welcome into another installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lenkov. Rich, how's it going? Hey, Joe. Tina Martini will be joining us later on. We start off with our first guest, Jack Cachado of the Clifford Law Offices. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Joe and Rich, thanks for having me this afternoon. Jack, on uh, December 10th, a tornado came through uh, down, say, Edwardsville and destroyed an Amazon warehouse. Uh, you are representing the family of Austin McEwen, who was 26 years old. He was an Amazon delivery driver out of Edwardsville, and he tragically died during this tornado. Tell us the basis of your lawsuit against Amazon and the other defendants. So our, our law offices, Clifford Law Offices, filed suit against Amazon, uh, Contegra Construction in Edwardsville, Illinois-based general contractor, and various construction entities. It, it's a very straightforward case. Uh, Amazon is able to sell FEMA-approved shelters. Uh, unfortunately, their facilities uh, do not have those in place for their own workers. That was very clear the day before and all intensifying through December 10th that Amazon had ample warning that tornadoes were coming. Uh, Amazon knew that it didn't have the appropriate shelters in place. And when you knew that, uh, why didn't you send people home? And we think the answer to that is it was a peak holiday delivery season. Amazon's very known for pushing its production lines and these workers should have never been there. Uh, the safety of these workers should have taken precedent over profits, of course. Jack, uh, Amazon has said that this building was relatively new. It was only a few years old at the time, and they did comply with all uh, you know, local federal regulations and standards. What's your response to that? So early on, right after the lawsuit was filed, Amazon's media team came out and said that this building was built to code. Uh, within days of the lawsuit, a structural engineer and a professional engineer contacted me, uh, someone mandated by the government the night of the accident and the night of the collapse to investigate it. Uh, he found several uh, international building code violations, most prominently that many of the actual support columns holding up the walls and holding up the roof were not anchored. And I've described it as a patio umbrella, not anchored underneath the table to a base when a wind comes, it's just going to pick it, pick it straight up like a peg out of a hole. Uh, it's a grave violation. And throughout discovery and throughout our further investigation, we're going to wonder why this job wasn't finished and why these anchors uh, certainly weren't welded properly. And Jack, you expect that discovery will show that Amazon had some advance notice that this type of storm was coming. So the National Weather Service, as early as the day before, uh, found that inclement weather uh, was proceeding towards Edwardsville. Uh, within hours before the tornado actually struck, the National Weather Service issued an advisory warning that there's a likelihood of one to two tornadoes, up to 70% chance. Uh, within days of our Clifford Law Offices filing a lawsuit, uh, interestingly, Amazon posted on LinkedIn in their global security center uh, in Goodyear, Arizona, a position for a chief meteorologist, which many large retailers do have, uh, not just to protect employees, but to protect their products. Uh, when inclement weather is coming, they should know about it and the right procedures should be taken. And none of this occurred. And we wonder why the world's most powerful corporation from a financial standpoint uh, doesn't have these resources in place. Jack, if I'm, uh, if I'm correct, then OSHA hasn't concluded their investigation, correct? Uh, OSHA's report is due in June of 2022. Uh, the structural engineer uh, that we call a whistleblower, I mean, he was there investigating on his own, indicated to me that he has sent his report uh, that is public to OSHA as long with his photographs. Uh, we expect, of course, OSHA to, to take those materials very seriously, issue a report in June of 2022. And then presently, uh, various congresswomen and congressmen in the United States House of Representatives issued uh, investigative inquiries to Amazon. And now we're four months uh, without Amazon responding, specifically Jeff Bezos and Amazon's new CEO, Andy Jassy. 
Jack, how important will that OSHA report be to your case? Uh, the OSHA report certainly is going to guide the construction theories. Uh, you know, OSHA is a federal agency, uh, came out here to investigate this collapse, and it's going to be a critical element to learn what occurred here. Uh, similar uh, when an airplane unfortunately crashes or a train derails, uh, the NTSB will investigate uh, the collision, in this case, a collapse. Uh, it's certainly going to guide the theories here that experts are going to rely upon. Jack, final question here on legal face-off is at the end of the case and at the end of all these cases is a family, right, with a, a story, um, a very unfortunate story in this case. I think it was their only child, if I'm uh, if I'm correct, and uh, obviously very devastating situation for parents. How are they dealing with this whole uh, this whole loss? Devastated. You know, we, we just passed the holiday. Uh, the McEwens celebrate Easter. Uh, very difficult for them, of course, to move through the Christmas holiday, uh, move through Easter. You know, these are reminders when their son isn't there, you know, sitting around the table. And I can tell you this, these are wonderful people. Uh, they wanted answers. Uh, they sought legal advice because it's very clear that these defendants weren't going to reach out and give them those answers without having to file a lawsuit. Um, it's obviously, I think, devastated is the right word here. Again, that's Jack Cachado of Clifford Law Offices. Jack, great insight. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rich, and thanks, Joe. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on Legal Faceoff, you're on WGN Radio. Our next guest is Professor Jenny Carroll of the University of Alabama and Yale University. She's also a former public defender and clerk for Judge William Wayne Justice. Jenny, thanks so much for joining Legal Faceoff today. My pleasure. So, Jenny, over the past two years, COVID has created a huge backlog of both civil as well as criminal cases in courts across the United States. We've all been hearing a lot about it. How bad is the problem and where are we seeing the worst of it? So in terms of how bad it is, it really depends on where you are. Um, criminal courts are more backed up, I would say, than civil courts. Um, and the reason that's worse is often folks in criminal cases are held pre-trial, which means they're literally sitting in jail waiting for their cases to go forward. It's also significant because we usually think of the speedy trial clock as ensuring that cases go quickly in criminal courts, um, but courts have suspended the speedy trial clock because of COVID. They're just now restarting it in some jurisdictions, but there are literally people who have waited 18 months for their criminal cases to go to trial. So, Professor, that means that prosecutors have to inherently decide which cases to fast track or which cases to proceed with. How are they making that decision and what impact is having is that having on criminal justice? Yeah, super good question. So in terms of how they're making the decision, um, you know, that would be a question for individual prosecutors offices. Um, we are seeing a lot of delay in charges on um, lower level offenses and offenses that um, are either first time offenders or involve what's categorized as nonviolent offenses. Um, so I think that that's kind of one policy type uh, screening that we're seeing occurring. Um, you know, in terms of how it affects the larger criminal justice system, 
system, um, I think it raises some questions of are we striking the proper balance between trying to ensure that criminal law is enforced while still maintaining things like the presumption of innocence and the right to a speedy trial for defendants who are sitting and waiting for their trials to advance? Because keep in mind, even if you're not in custody, just having a criminal case looming over you can have a tremendous impact, not only on you, but your family, your entire community. So, you know, again, it's all about what sort of balances the courts are trying to strike. So what do you think courts can do to accelerate clearing the backlog? I mean, obviously, choices are being made. Cases are essentially being tranched um, based on a multitude of factors. But what else do you think courts can do to accelerate clearing the backlog? Because some of the numbers that we've been seeing have been pretty disturbing. And then you've got a number of, of attorneys that are just resigning because of burnout, because they're getting better opportunities in the private sector. So what do you think courts can do to address this? So first and foremost, courts can reinitiate that speedy trial clock. And the speedy trial clock requires things to move forward or be dismissed. And so courts have a tremendous remedy available to them. They can simply dismiss cases that are not prosecuted um, swiftly and efficiently. Now, that may sound unfair to prosecutors and the police who do the hard job every day of trying to make decisions about what sort of um, investigations and charges should be brought. Um, But they also have remedies available to them. Prosecutors can offer a variety of programs in which a person can avoid a trial altogether. Um, They can either plead or they can go into a diversionary program or an alternative justice program. Um, I think prosecutors need to utilize those more effectively. I also think that we as a community have a responsibility to really hold our prosecutors who are elected in most jurisdictions responsible for failing to bring cases swiftly and resolve them quickly. Um, And also our judges responsible for not hearing those cases quickly and moving those cases through our system. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, in COVID times, it seems like, you know, you almost there's lots of people joking about how COVID is an excuse for anything. Right. That if you get bad service, if, you know, you don't want to go. I just had a, a friend tell me today that he, you know, he, he lucked out of not going to a wedding because of COVID. Well, I think it's easy to use COVID as a crutch in these circumstances to explain away some of the inefficiencies that we see in the court system. I think to your point, it's important to keep in mind that despite COVID, we need to make sure that public officials and the courts are doing their jobs and making sure that these cases are going quickly, because otherwise it's easy to just sit back and say, well, it's COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, I completely agree. I, I think you're right. I think that COVID exasperated a problem, but as I've written about extensively, this was a problem that predated COVID. Um, So yes, COVID made it worse without a doubt, but this was also already a painfully slow system for many individuals caught within that system. It was already a system that was eking pleas out of defendants by holding them pretrial for extended period of time and granting continuance after continuances um, to prosecutors or because of delays in the court system. I saw that when I was a public defender. I was a public defender long before COVID, and I witnessed that in my clients' lives. And and that is not how our criminal legal system should function. And and again, I think that we tend to think of it as simply a trial system. It's important to recognize um, a lot of cases resolved through pleas, but there are also alternative systems that we could be utilizing that could clear many of these cases and actually produce better results for our communities. Last question, Professor, we'll get you out of here on this. Is there any role uh, for legislatures in fixing this problem? Absolutely. So legislatures can play a role. They can create stronger um, speedy trial rules. They can create greater requirements on the executive branch, which are your prosecutors, to bring cases quickly and to resolve them quickly. They can also put in place those alternative systems I'm talking about. If you look at, um, you know, other jurisdictions have different types of systems that allow for mediation or allow for um, other non-trial based remedies for individuals involved in criminal cases. And those seem to be moving much more quickly, even in COVID times. So there's plenty our legislators can do. Again, that's Professor Jenny Carroll at the University of Alabama and Yale University. Professor, thanks so much for the insight. 
Thank you for having me. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving along at Legal Faceoff, and we're thrilled for our next guest because normally we have amateurs talking about comparing two songs and artists claiming at who's the rightful owner. And now we get an actual expert to comment on the matter. Jeremy Arose, Associate Professor of Music Theory at the University of Memphis, joins Legal Faceoff. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Professor Levitating by Dua Lipa. I know, by the way, from listening to uh, some of your uh, interviews on this subject that you're a fan of Dua Lipa. How can't you be? And the, and the song was crowned Billboard's top song of 2021. Dua Lipa is now facing not one but two copyright lawsuits by artists who are claiming that basically uh, she ripped them off. In the flurry of similar sounding song lawsuits that we've seen and in fact covered on this show, why are these two so significant? I think they're significant because of the precedent they could set. I think the the facts of the case aren't too different from most of the others that have come about in recent years, Uh, a lot like the Gray versus Perry case, where it was a really short segment of music that did admittedly sound similar, but it wasn't distinctive enough for that to really be a legitimate copyright case. Unfortunately, that was the, the, the ruling in the appeal. So if either of the plaintiffs win, then these are significant cases. Uh, if they don't, then this will just be a historical blip that will be something that we talked about this year, and, and that'll be it, I think. So, Jeremy, let's start breaking down these lawsuits. One of them is by Article Sound System, which points out that the chorus of Levitating and their song Live Your Life have a lot in common. They claim that they feature the same chord progression in the same key, And the vocal melodies of each include many of the same notes and rhythms. And even the lyrics have some similarity as well. Both use the words all night and reference other features of things like the night sky, moonlight, and so forth. In in your opinion, is that enough for the plaintiffs to prevail? Well, it's enough that a jury might be convinced because a jury is not a panel of experts and they're really the X factor in this case. So it would depend what happens in the courtroom. Uh, Do I think it's a legitimate case? No, because I think it's way too short of a musical segment and I think nothing is distinctive enough. However, if you just hear those two segments quickly in isolation, one right after the other, uh, it may seem pretty damning. And uh, so it's really hard to say how, how how it will go down. Uh, I don't think that the plaintiffs should prevail in this case. I disagree with the lawsuit, but whether or not they will is another question. And that's what that's what I'm concerned about. Really interesting answer, because it really goes to the heart of not just this this kind of case, but so many cases that rely on, you know, the jury system, which isn't, to your point, a panel of 12 experts. It's a panel of 12 people. And while a lot of these cases come down to how similar it sounds to a layperson's ears. And I mean, I've played it. I think a lot of our listeners have heard us play these two songs, uh, the comparison. Uh, they sound, there's a lot of the, a lot of parts that sound really similar. And the question is really interesting as to whether that would be enough or whether the expert testimony um, by, you know, people like yourself would really carry the day. So I, who knows, right? It depends on the jury. Um, Another interesting point is the second song, Wiggle and Giggle All Night, is from the 70s, right? And a key point in prevailing in any of these lawsuits is to show intent. So can you maybe get into a little bit of the burden that a plaintiff would have to have in proving that, in this case, Dua Lipa had the requisite intent in writing Levitating so many years later? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think it would be difficult to prove intent since the song was so widely circulated and would have been available to them, it's not necessarily a case that they, um, how shall I put this? I think 
they don't have to prove that they did listen to it and did intend to do it. They simply have to improve that prove that they could have had access to the song. So since the song had been circulating for so long, um, they, they don't need a smoking gun, right? They don't need to prove, hey, you did listen to this song. Uh, that would help. But I think the probability that they had ever heard Wiggle and Giggle is low. Um, I had never heard the song before. You know, it's from 1979. I'm not sure how many people do remember the song. So that that makes it a little bit less of a less of a legitimate case. And also the musical similarity isn't that great. I got just one follow up. Sorry uh, on that point. And, and I know you've talked about this before. You know, an additional burden that these plaintiffs have to carry and prove is that they suffer damages. Right. That's the key. That's one of the elements of any lawsuit. And to your point, I have never heard of this band or the song. How hard will it be to show that they suffer damages? In fact, you could also argue that they benefited greatly from levitating in that we're talking about wiggle and giggle all night. And, you know, to the extent that someone is talking about a fairly random song from a very unknown band from 1979 actually helps them rather than hurts them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Neither of these artists have suffered any damages. There is no universe, I think, in which uh, in which levitating somehow cut into the market for article sound system song. Uh, this only benefited them. They're getting many more streams and more people know who they are. And I don't think there still was a market for Wiggle and Giggle all night. Uh, how many people were, were streaming it? What kind of revenues were they even making off that song nowadays? Uh, so this has only benefited both plaintiffs. They have already won in, in that case. Yeah. So, Jeremy, you know, we've got these two lawsuits and remains to be seen what's going to happen. And these two suits are against the backdrop of the very famous Blurred Lines case from several years ago. What kind of impact has Blurred Lines had on creativity? And what do you think it's going to mean if Dua Lipa loses one or both of these lawsuits? Sure. Uh, Blurred Lines, I'd say that we haven't fully seen all of the impact of it yet. You know, this the, the ruling was upheld only uh, about four years ago in 2018. So there haven't been too many high profile cases that have gone to trial since that time. Uh, the precedent I have, as I've as I've written, uh, is a scary one. And if there can be that little musical similarity and have that be a successful copyright case, that that does you know that that does frighten me a little bit. Um, the fact that the Gray versus Perry case was overturned and ruled in favor of Car uh, ruled in favor of Perry that that helps and that suggests that the precedent isn't too strong and isn't too damning. Um, you know, I, I quoted one New York Times article uh, where uh, Ben Cesario interviewed a bunch of songwriters who said that they're uh, creating in a more timid way, that they're being a bit more cautious, they're being a bit more careful. And whether that continues, you know, it's it's really hard to say. But if either of these plaintiffs are successful, uh, I think that that will be a scary precedent, that an obscure song that probably no one has heard from 1979, uh, that even though it's highly unlikely that the defendant had ever heard it, let alone intentionally plagiarized it. I don't know. If they win, that's that's not a good situation. Yeah, agreed. And just last question here on, on Legal Faceoff, Professor. I was thinking about this a lot last night, and I listened to your excellent interview on this on this topic. You know, the whole idea that you can now be the, you can now owe money as an artist not because of plagiarism, not because of the similarity of notes, but simply because of the vibe, which is basically what Blurred Line says. Like, there's hundreds and hundreds of bands that we all love that are inspired by earlier bands. I mean, there's a band called Greta Van Fleet, right? That's the last couple of years that if you put that on, like, and you bet a million dollars that that was um, Led Zeppelin, most people would take that bet. They sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. You know, I was just at Coachella on Friday with my daughter and I was the oldest guy there. Let's all, all agree. But I was watching Harry Styles, who I love. Harry Styles has written dozens of songs that are like tributes to Fleetwood Mac, to Paul Simon. Right. So, you know, that's just that's the way music is. As an artist, you pay tribute to earlier bands. Now are, is Harry Styles subject to a lawsuit? You know, his brand new song off his new record is like a Fleetwood Mac song, basically. It, why isn't Greta Van Fleet being sued for similarities to Led Zeppelin? Like, where does this all end, right? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Homage is part of the game. And 
I'm really glad that Led Zeppelin has not attacked Greta Van Vliet with, with a lawsuit. That's a good thing, probably because they've been on the receiving end of one themselves right. and know what that Most feels like. And they, right. Then they understand that, that Greta Van Vliet is not causing them any damages, so they would not do any good for themselves or others by, by doing that. But yeah, I mean, let's just hope that homage and paying tribute to earlier artists and writing in an earlier style does not become a crime. Because if it does, I think a lot of artists are going to be in in big trouble and music's in big trouble. We like hearing this music that, that reminds us of the, of the earlier days sometimes. So thanks so much for your time today. Sure thing. Our next guest on the Legal Faceoff podcast is Lindsay Page Marcus, principal with Chuhak and Texan, here to talk about her new book, A Gift for the Future, Conversations About Estate Planning. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Lindsay, you're an estate planning attorney and your new book, A Gift for the Future, launched yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm super excited. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your book and what it's about and what made you decide at this stage of your career to write it? Sure. So I think the hopeless romantic in me likes to believe that the only reason why people don't have a proper plan in place is a function of education. And when I recognized that early on in my career, I wanted to educate the world. And over time, I thought that it would be a wonderful resource to have all of these ideas and concepts in one concise material. And that was my goal with the gift for the future. So it's not traditionally, it's not like a traditional legal text or a how-to book with regards to estate planning. It's more of a story. Tell us why you decided to frame it in that way. Um, the real reason is I didn't want us, anyone to fall asleep. <laughs> I needed to figure out a way to keep the rate reader and the prospective clients engaged with the idea and the need for estate and tax planning. It's not necessarily a pick-me-up of a conversation or something that someone's eager to roll up their sleeves and dive into. So I tried to make it as lighthearted as I could to keep everyone engaged with the message. So you actually tell the story of a I, I call them a famous couple. It's definitely um, a couple that a number of our listeners are going to associate with. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who the couple is and how you tell that story? For sure. So as I walk the reader through estate planning, through this fictional couple, um, who better to use than the all-American couple of Jack and Diane from the John Mellencamp song? So we watch them court one another, fall in love, get engaged. And at that point in their lives, they need to have those difficult conversations about whether or not a prenuptial agreement is appropriate. They get married. They have children. Who should act as guardian for their children? Um, one of them starts a business. They go on, uh, become incredibly successful, have grandchildren, increase their philanthropy. And so throughout these heavy topics driven by death and taxes, we watch Jack and Diane navigate some of these key questions for them as a married couple. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, to look at estate planning from that lens because, you know, in the song and in your book, they start off as, you know, very innocent, uh, wide-eyed uh, teenagers who have the world in front of them and who aren't really worried about things like estate planning and prenups. And then, you know, things change as you get a little bit older and more involved and maybe more financially successful. So how do you advise prospective clients and readers to deal with those difficult questions early on when the relationship is, you know, just about sucking on a chili dog outside the tasty freeze <laughs> when, you know, you don't want to talk about those issues, but it really is important to talk about them early, right? For sure. I think over the course of my career, the couples that have experienced the greatest success in marriage over the long haul 
have really been those that are able to tackle some of these difficult conversations. And I think a big challenge for so many is they don't know where to start. So at the end of each chapter, there's a section called conversation starters with ideas of what you could ask your significant other, your partner, or yourself to help start addressing first and foremost, what you need and want and communicate that with whomever else is in your life. Lindsay, I think we got to talk to uh, Mellencamp about revising, updating the lyrics to include, <laughs> you know, forget, forget the lyrics that are in there, include words like prenup and, you know, in the song. For sure. I'd love to consult. John, give me a ring. I'm available anytime. I'm a huge fan and would love to collaborate. Yeah, we'll have to figure out, Joe Brand, how to uh, rhyme prenuptial agreement. Uh, yeah, that I think would be quite a challenge. <laughs> uh, time's up rhymes with prenup, I, I believe. And I, I believe that's where we're at right now. Uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time and all the insight. Congrats on the book. Thank you all. On to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Let's get to our guests, starting with Norma Fuentes, Government Relations Associate at Strickland and Associates and a part-time law student at Loyola. Norma, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Along with Brian K. Fritz, Managing Partner, Restaurant and Retail Litigation Group of KPM Law. Brian, thanks for being here as well. My pleasure. Tina, let's start with the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing a new abortion law. Yeah, so last week, Joe, Florida um, Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law. It's a very Mississippi-style anti-abortion measure that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Um, you know, there are a couple of small exemptions to this. For example, where a pregnancy is a serious risk to the mother or where there is a fatal fetal abnormality that's detected um, interestingly, there have to be two physicians that confirm that diagnosis in writing before it's going to be honored. But, un but unfortunately, there are no other exemptions um, to provide the ability to obtain abortions. In some of the cases that we've seen in other, in other places, for example, in cases involving rape, incest, or human trafficking. And this law is scheduled to go into effect on July 1st. What's really interesting is that Florida had previously allowed abortion through the second trimester of a pregnancy, which actually had made it one of the most permissive states for abortion, at least in the Southeast. And in fact, many women would travel to Florida to get an abortion. Um, a couple of years ago, as recently as 2019, Florida reported nearly 72,000 abortions that year. Um, this Florida law is on the heels of a Tallahassee Circuit Court judge ruling that Florida can require a 24-hour waiting period to get an abortion. And Florida is the latest among a series of states, including Mississippi, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, which are making it much more difficult to obtain abortions. Um, in Kentucky, um, the abortion bill bans most abortions after 15 weeks. And in Oklahoma, abortions are illegal except for cases of medical emergency. As we've talked about numerous times previously on this show, um, we're waiting to see what the US Supreme Court does with the Mississippi law. And many of us are expecting um, that Roe versus Wade, there's not gonna be much, if any of it left by the time that the Supreme Court uh, decides this case, Rich. Yeah, these three states uh, are setting a pattern that most red states are gonna follow. Um, in restricting, severely restriction, restricting abortion. And this is because of the makeup of the court, right? Let's face it, there is a solid 6-3 conservative majority right now. And the most recent appointees before um, uh, Katani Brown-Jackson are Trump appointees. And they have all signaled, uh, some stronger than others, that they are open to overturning Roe and Casey. So these states are jumping all over it and crafting these in the wake of the Texas law, crafting these new laws that restrict abortions pretty significantly. And again, it's, it's, it's going to happen more. Um, and as the Republicans overtake or, or, or take over 
Congress, which is widely expected in November, uh, we're going to see even more power for these red states to enact these kind of legislations and uh, for governors to sign them. So a bit of a disturbing trend. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts on uh, on this development? Well, you know, I looked at the law and kind of the stated purpose of the law, and I think the way I read it, they were stating the law is here to protect the rights of those who cannot protect themselves. And trying to look at the law and, and rather than the classic context of when does life begin in the religious context of it, I was trying to look at it in terms of the balancing the rights of those who need protections. Um, if the premises were protecting of rights, the rights of those who can't protect themselves, this law doesn't do anything to protect someone who is pregnant as a result of sexual abuse or rape. And to me, that's someone who was unable to protect themselves from a predator or some other type of action. So I'm in my mind, I'm trying to balance why does one human life deserve protections, but another human life doesn't deserve protections. And maybe there should be some kind of balance between the two rather than, you know, who am I to say, which, is more worthy of protection, but who is someone else to say one is not worthy of protection? And it seems to me there should be some kind of compromise or middle ground rather than just pure capitulation on the other side. Yeah, it's a very interesting take. And, and Norma, what's also interesting is that, you know, while there seems to be support in certain states for these type of restrictions, I think now that this issue is on the ballot, in many ways, for the first time in, in you know so many years, it will actually serve to mobilize the other side. It will force Democrats who oppose such restrictions to come out in possibly record numbers uh, to vote in favor of candidates who will fight to keep Roe and Casey in place. Um, I could for sure definitely sees that, see that and it legislation that passes like this in Florida, you know, it's not unexpected and it makes me really happy to live in Illinois. Um, but it's also a scary thought with the Supreme Court being more conservative now that laws such, of, such as these could cause a trickle-down effect because we know that um, that, that is usually what, what tends to happen. And for me, um, Abortions are a health concern. Even with these kinds of laws going into place, abortions won't be going away. Um, they will just be more back alley abortions, which will be more of a problem um, for states and for uh, human beings that are actually living and walking um, on this earth. Rich, let's move on to the next topic, the latest on a David Copperfield trick that didn't work. Yeah, it didn't go so well. David Copperfield uh, has a trick where he makes like 15 members of the audience disappear. And as a fan of magic myself, I thought that was magic. I thought they actually, poof, went up in a cloud of smoke. It turns out that uh, the trick involves a fast walk, as David Copperfield called it, or as the plaintiffs call it, a, you know, rushed run where they take these 15 members of the audience and there's, you know, a series of back doors and alleys. And they take them through the casino and they end up in the back of the casino all in about 90 seconds. And when the trick is revealed, suddenly they, they appear. Well, one such participant, uh, a British fella uh, in 2018, I believe, fell. Uh, or I'm sorry, in 2013, he fell during the course of this, uh, this action and hurt himself and alleged brain injuries and so forth. Uh, the case took a while to get to trial, but it finally went to trial. And the testimony is actually pretty fascinating because David Copperfield is forced on the stand to admit how this trick happens, which, again, you never see. Right. So thank God for discovery. But uh, it's interesting because the jury found that while Copperfield and some other defendants were negligent in the way that this trick happened, they were not responsible, which is you know a little confusing. They didn't. Uh, they, they found that the plaintiff himself was responsible and this. We'll talk about with Brian here in a second, the, the legal theory behind that. But Tina, does this now ruin uh, your belief in, uh, in magic that 15 people can actually suddenly disappear? 
Yeah, it kind of ruins it just like, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny got right. ruined for me too. So, um, I mean, I think David Copperfield's great. I mean, he's a little strange, I think, but, you know, that's okay. Um, and it doesn't, you know, really, I guess, ruin my belief in magic. I mean, I think we all sort of figured out behind the scenes there was something like this going on. Um, and I don't necessarily disagree with where this came, where, where this case came out. I'd be interested to hear what Brian has to say about it. Yeah, Brian, you and I handle these kind of cases, you know, for a living. We defend uh, allegations of negligence. And what the jury did here was find basically that while there was negligence on the part of the defendants, it was not as much as plaintiff's own negligence, that he was more responsible. And that's a theory that, you know, you and I talk about every day when we try to convince juries that while there might be some liability for defendant, uh, plaintiffs also have liability, that you have to have some sense walking around the world of, you know, what's going on. I don't know exactly how that played out in this case. Um, I imagine they argue that he was a willing participant, that he uh, assumed the risks of that. And in doing so, he was more responsible than, than the defendants. Well, you know, I had a little bit of a different take on this. And certainly from the um, perspective that you had earlier that, you know, you're a volunteer here for, for a magic trick. You know, what are you taking on and what are you assuming the risk of here? I mean, it's one thing when a magician says, can I have volunteers from the audience? And people raise their hands not knowing what it is. It's another thing when he says, hey, I want to cut someone in half. Who wants to volunteer? There's a whole level of risk you're taking on at that point. Um, but in this case, the question, you know, you're not an insurer of someone's safety as a magician or a hotel or whatever the case is. And what we don't know really is, what was the condition of this hallway there? There were construction going on. When was that place there? But certainly if the hotel or the, the people putting on the show did an inspection and didn't know of any hazards or obstacles back there, not quite sure where their liability is because someone else put something in. But what I did see about this case and the point you were on, Rich, was that the jury seemed to find negligence on the part of the defendants, but no liability for the damages. I interpret that as someone saying, look, you did something wrong, but what you did wrong didn't cause the injuries you're claiming. Yeah. And I think to that point, Norma, one of the important points that came out and the Supreme Court rejected the argument was that the plaintiffs argued that the ju trial judge should not have allowed in evidence showing that this plaintiff was okay. He was standing and walking and in fact walked to court or a surveillance video of him walking to court with his dog. Uh, the plaintiff argued that that shouldn't have been allowed in. But to Brian's point, that shows that this guy was fine, that maybe the defendants did do something wrong. But at the end of the day, his uh, his complaints were exaggerated. Yeah, no, most certainly. I think the conditions of the hallway are a big factor in um, the negligence and to him um, being able to walk around and be perfectly fine has nothing to do with the case. Joe, uh, David Copperfield was the one of the stars of one of my favorite 80s slasher films called Terror Train. So uh, check that out. A young David Copperfield was prominently featured in that movie. And just the best of both worlds for you, magic and horror. By the way, not to be confused <laughs> with the horror film Magic. That was Anthony Hopkins <laughs> as a ventriloquist, and his dummy, of course, was uh, evil and took over his uh, his mind. Uh, of course, of course, I know it well. Uh, let's head to California, Tina, where a woman is charged with assault for attacking a boy riding a bike. Yeah, so um, Santa Fe, Karen. Yeah, I was going to say we um, we actually love talking about Karens on this show. This time we've got a Santa Ana Karen. Um, last week, her video went viral. And apparently Santa Ana Karen is an 80-year-old woman named Susan Garcia, who has been affectionately called Santa Ana Karen, or also known as Neighborhood Karen. Um, she apparently um, accosted a boy, 12-year-old boy named Jeffrey Gregory, who was riding his bike around in the neighborhood. He was riding his bike on the sidewalk. Um, his mother had told him to do that rather than riding his bike on the street, which is what kids often do. Because apparently the week before that, um, he'd almost gotten hit by a car. So he took it to the sidewalk and also happened to be wearing a body camera. 
And he was riding around. I actually watched the video several times. I don't know if anybody here has watched it, but it's actually pretty illuminating as to what really happened here. So he's wearing a body camera. He's riding around. Neighborhood Karen accosts him as he's passing by and starts to scream at him to get off the sidewalk. And she actually started to push and hit him. He was actually pretty polite. He said, excuse me, you know, can you please not touch me? Um, she screams at him to get off the sidewalk. And, you know, then she hits him. Um, you can hear what sounds like a smack. He says, why did you just hit me? And then her response is, you know, do you want me to hit you again? Um, it was really pretty crazy. And then his father and his mother come out. Um, he goes back into the house and the cops come and she has been charged with assault. She claims that she was she felt threatened and scared. Um, the video really says it all. I mean, she was the aggressor here. And apparently it's not the first incident with her. Apparently there was an incident not all that long ago at the neighborhood playground. Um, people around the neighborhood know her for being really difficult and belligerent. So um, I think she's developed quite a reputation, Rich, and I'm not sure she's going to be able to shed this reputation anytime soon now. She's beating up on little boys. How would you like to be named actually Karen these days? Imagine if your if your given name was was Karen. You're already it's already strike one and two. But yeah, I mean the video is great. Um, who knew that twelve year olds have body cams, right? I mean, is that that's now a thing that in addition to cops? I mean, thank God this kid had a a body cam. Otherwise, this woman would have got away with it. But yeah, she was arrested um, and charged as it should be. Um, uh, Norma, I don't know if you saw the video, but uh, it's uh, it's a sign of our times that we've got Karens running around, but also we've got kids with uh, with body cams. You know, I like to believe my mother was a neighborhood Karen. Just <laughs> 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 with me, no one else. And I think the real problem in this scenario for me was just putting your hands on another person. I um, think it would be very hard to establish assault um, or battery if. Um, you know, you're just out there really watching out for the neighborhood children, making sure that they're not being hit. Um, but once you put hands on somebody with the intent to stop them from doing something else, um, that just screams um, battery or aggravated assault to me. So, Yeah. Uh, Brian, you're well known to be a, uh, a Kevin, <laughs> the male equivalent of a Karen. I know you. I'm a closet Karen. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're a Kevin on more than one occasion. I know you screamed at neighborhood kids to get off your lawn and so forth. So do you have a different take on this one or are you sympathetic to the young boy? Well, I think maybe I just think this whole thing is so stupid. Ah, you see, <laughs> Kevin's Kevin speaks up. I mean, legally, yeah, this is an assault. A woman put her hands on a kid and that's wrong. And, and to this woman, who do you think you are really? But why the outrage that to me, that's the core principle here is what is going on in your head that makes you so upset that you feel the need, the compulsion to police the sidewalks and start dictating and, and touching other people who you have no relationship with? And honestly, equally bad, the parents response to this, because, yeah, I would have I would be upset if someone put their hands on my kid. But the parents of this child simply poured gasoline on this fire by coming out after it. And no one was hurt in this whole thing. This is the kind of thing when I grew up, if this happened to me, my mom would say, just shut up and do your homework and go away. You just, you know, nobody really needs to make a big deal out of this. The only adult in the room in this whole issue instance was this kid on the bike. <laughs> just seems more, unnecessary. Show more body cams, I say. I think Norma, I think Norma brings up a good point that the more we just start throwing out this term Karen around to people, that's that's somebody's daughter or that's somebody's mother. So just be careful with who you just blatantly call a Karen out. <laughs> uh, let's move on to Johnny Depp and the news coming out of his former marriage from their former marriage counselor. Uh, some pretty serious comments. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a great trial. It's all televised. So it's like I'm trying to watch a lot of it. It's fascinating. Um, just, you know, there's so many dynamics. And of course, this is the uh, trial where Johnny Depp is suing his ex-girlfriend, ex-wife, Amber Heard, another actress, another model uh, for defamation because she wrote an article um, in which she alleges that she was abused by Johnny Depp. And now he's suing her, alleging that that's 
not true and that he has suffered financially and his career has suffered because of it. So that's the backdrop. But this trial is being televised and it's, it's going to last a few more weeks. And it's fascinating for so many different. I mean, I'm, I'm taking a deep dive into some of it, um, you know, like down to analyzing whether Johnny Depp is wearing his hair up or down on days where Amber Heard is wearing her hair up and down. They're wearing, uh, even though they're, you know, they hate each other, allegedly, they're wearing similar like little bee pendants or something. Um, it came out, uh, you know, that Amber Heard is alleging, you know, years of abuse. And uh, yesterday came out that uh, she threw a glass at Johnny Depp, allegedly, and he uh, he severed the tip of his finger um, and that, uh, you know, uh, she wouldn't want to be around him and his friends because all they did in her in her words was sit around old, old guys sitting around playing music. So lots of interesting parts of the story. I don't know at the end of the day if, uh, you know, there's much of an appetite for two really wealthy people suing each other. Um, and we all know that the ultimate defense to a defamation case is the truth. Uh, there is a lot of evidence, strong evidence that seems to support that Johnny Depp was emotionally at least, but also physically abusive of Amber Heard. Um, but we also heard, Tina, we also heard from the therapist. And I was a little bit surprised about that. I mean, isn't that privilege? Wouldn't you think that the discussions between a patient and their therapist is privileged? Uh, I would think so, but I guess it's their privilege to waive, right? They're meaning the uh, the patients, so to speak. So my guess is that the decision was made to waive the privilege. I mean, at the end of the day, I just find the whole thing really sad. I mean, I, I think they're both at fault here. It sounds like if you take at face value what things like the therapist said, it just seems like they're both bringing the worst out in each other. Um, it sounds like she was saying that, you know, Johnny Depp has had issues when he was a lot younger and that he sort of, that those had sort of stabilized, but it's almost like Amber Heard sort of lights a fire and is like, you know, lights a fire to kerosene. And so at the end of the day, I just find it all very sad. And it's really unfortunate because, I mean, I like Johnny Depp, but I think, you know, he seems to me to have gotten stranger as he's gotten older. So um, it's just sad. Yeah, Norma, uh, you know, Johnny Depp has had an incredibly successful career, but in the last, you know, four or five years hasn't appeared in very much. He was dropped from the uh, Fantastic Beasts uh, series recently. Um, you know, do you think there is some merit to the idea that his career has been affected by these allegations or... Is it simply, hey, Johnny Depp's time has passed. That's what happens with actors. And as you get older, there's much less of a market for your services. Yeah. Um, no, I definitely believe that there is merit to um, the defamation case, just given how strong the societal reaction is to um, cases that may or may not involve uh, domestic violence. I believe that. Uh, media has a way of misconstruing trials and misconstruing um, information when it is coming from two very um, famous, well-known um, people. There is a, such a thing as clickbait, and the more that um, an article is able to solicit clicks, um, which usually happens with the more... Um, how would you say it? Uh, not false necessarily, but a more um, emotional, yeah, embellished um, um, title. Uh, so I, I could see how many of his fans have turned away from him um, if that was what was being perpetrated on, on the media of him. I know a couple of my friends don't see him the same way um, after seeing his trial come to light. Well, let's get into some more potential clickbait uh, from Johnny Depp to Johnny Knoxville. Tina, Bam Majira is reportedly settling his case on the newest Jackass movie. Yeah, so Joe, last week news hit that Bam Majera was settling and dismissing his lawsuit against the makers of Jackass Forever, including Johnny Knoxville, director Jeffrey Tremaine, producer Spike Jones, and the various production companies, including the distributor Paramount Pictures that were involved in the film. Um, Majera had actually filed his lawsuit when he was fired from the movie for breach of contract. Um, the contract had actually explicitly forbid had forbidden drug use. And um, it, it's interesting. Majera actually suggested that this contract 
had too many conditions for him to be able to abide by all of them, notwithstanding the fact that he signed it. Um, And he claimed that they actually amounted to psychological torture. He claims he was wrongfully ejected from the production of the movie when he tested positive for Adderall, which he says um, he was on under a doctor's supervision. Um, The contract also said that he would not be able to engage in negotiating a contract for a new jackass film unless he stayed in treatment for a minimum of 90 days and followed whatever rules he had been given by the treatment center. And that his ability to continue to participate was going to be contingent on his continued sobriety and mental health. What's interesting, though, is this is not the only issue that came out, you know, came out about Majira uh, in the context of this movie. Apparently, um, the movie director um, got a TRO against him after he sent disturbing messages allegedly to him, um, text messages, and then also he um, allegedly made some threats to um, the director Tremaine's family on social media. So not surprising, Rich, that this got settled. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of things going on on both sides of this, Um, but, you know, just kind of disturbing stuff. I've never seen the Jackass series. I know it's very popular, so. I mean, despite what people think about sort of, you know, Hollywood or maybe movie making, like, you know, these contracts are incredibly specific and incredibly Mm -hmm. detailed when you consider the amount of money involved in making a film, right? I mean, you know, an average film these days is probably 30 or $40 million and blockbusters like Marvel, you know, could be $250 million budget. When you consider that and that most of them are relying on star power, these contracts are incredibly specific. And when you violate them, even to a small degree, and this was not a small violation, allegedly failing a drug test has a direct impact on you know the success of, of, the, of the film. And also, by the way, these films are on incredibly tight schedules. You know, it's like people might have the perception that it's like, you know, this fun Hollywood production. They're incredibly detailed and like, you know, you got to be on time. You got to show up. And if you don't, that costs actual money. It's no fun waiting for, you know, talent who is, you know, late or, or, or not able to produce. So, Brian, um, you know, I guess it's good that they settled, but uh, it, I think it's an example of how these are contracts just like any other. And if they're not adhered to, there is a price to be paid. And Christina, you hit on it. This was an adult who read the contract and signed it and he should be bound by his terms. But on a more just fundamental sense, like this feels like the death of common sense in America here that I mean, you haven't seen Jackass, Christina. I got to tell you. Is once absolutely riveting and hilarious in a way that I never thought I would enjoy it. I can't get enough of it. But having watched it, what I can tell you is they do some incredibly dangerous stunts on this, so much to the point that they actually post a warning before showing them that no one should try these. These are professionals and we're doing this. When you start injecting drug use or mental instability or something where these are someone can get hurt or killed, not just Mr. McGarry, but the staff or the, the co-workers. These rules are here for protection of everybody, not just, you know, and, the, and, and along with the fundamental economic issues that Rich was talking about for production. But God forbid something happen on the set because this gentleman comes to work whether on the influence of drugs or because he's not focused because of some kind of mental illness. I mean, that's the whole point of the torts of negligent hiring and retention, you know, bad things can happen on dangerous sets. And this was a step I feel being taken to protect the, the people involved. Well, just to add on that, and I mean, this isn't funny. It's just kind of eye opening. I, I heard on a podcast one Steve-O saying, I've, ne- I've taken a lot of painkillers. I've never taken painkillers to kill pain. Like that's <laughs> just kind of the mindset. That would I mean, get- to that point, Joel, like on the other hand, it's jackass. Like, what do you expect from these guys? Like, are you shocked that Bam was taking drugs? He had a long history of drug use. So, you know, it's right. like you're clutching your pearls and thinking, oh, my God, these guys are taking drugs. It's jackass. How do you not? How do you do that film? Not on drugs. Right. Right. Uh, from Johnny Knoxville to Knoxville, Tennessee. Joey, great job. with Stories. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were taking no gum in school to a new level, Rich, and a, uh, Judge has dismissed a ninth grader's unusual lawsuit. Just when you thought we've seen it all, we've got a lawsuit by, a, again, a ninth grader 
uh, objecting to chewing gum. Now, you know, uh, there's a little more to it. She allegedly suffers from a condition called misophonia, which is a uh, aversion to sounds, specific sounds, a strong reaction to sounds like dripping water or uh, repetitive noises like pencil tapping or, in this case, chewing gum. And she sued uh, the school because they were not doing enough to deal with this disorder and stop kids from chewing gum. A court dismissed it. Interestingly, not really because they felt that the lawsuit was not with merit. They said that she had not exhausted her administrative um, uh, avenues before she filed lawsuit. So, you know, I would have loved them to say that this was a frivolous lawsuit. On the other hand, you know, maybe it is a condition that the school should be more conscious of. I don't know. Tina, how you're supposed to really police that? You know, this is ninth grade. I mean, kids shouldn't be chewing gum in school as it is, but it's going to happen. So I don't know how you really uh, remedy that too much if you're the school. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's difficult. Um, You know, this condition does really exist. So I really think at the end of the day that where we are with this case is by virtue of the fact that she didn't exhaust her administrative remedies. I'm not really sure what kind of a decision we're going to see if they end up going back and exhausting their administrative remedies. I mean, as you noted, kids are not supposed to be chewing gum um, in in class. So I just don't know what kind of, as you mentioned, I don't know what kind of accommodation you make here, but I mean, it is a real condition. I've actually, I mean, I've actually talked to a couple of people who have it. They can't concentrate with this condition. So all right, everyone's we'll go around. We'll do our around the horn, Joe, and everyone's favorite gum. This this segment is not sponsored, unfortunately, any gum manufacturer. But Joe, what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite brand of chewing gum? I'm really not not, a- not in a menacing way that's going to trigger someone's condition, but just in a normal everyday. You're not a gum guy? No, I I, wow. I, I just don't like it. I'll rather I'd rather have a mint or maybe a breath strip or some spray. Um, I mean winter or not not the green mint or the you know like winter green. I like any anything with blue. I, I know I sound peppermint? like a right now, but peppermint. Uh, yeah, peppermint's fine. I, I think it's winter green though. Spearmint. I don't like spearmint. I don't like spearmint. Uh, you've told us everything you don't like, Brian. <laughs> Favorite. Let's try to answer the question. Objection, not responsive. Brian, what type of gum would you uh, prefer? Uh, I think it would have to be Big Red or Orbitz. Big Red. That's a bold wow. call right there. A, that burns my tongue, Big Red. It's bold. Norma, favorite gum? Um, it depends what setting. Uh, winter fresh, if I'm working, hubba bubba, if I'm just hanging out and watching. Right, you're feeling a little crazy, go some hubba bubba. Yeah, I like blowing bubbles. So. <laughs> Don't do it in ninth grade in Knoxville. Uh, Tina, gum. So, um, you know, putting aside whether it's good for my teeth or not, I, there are two that I love, Juicy Fruit. Um, and remember Big League Chew? I used to love Big League Chew growing up. Oh, yeah. You're in the big leagues when you're into Big League Chew was their tagline. <laughs> I love Juicy Fruit. The Juicy Fruit, though, literally the taste expires in like 30 seconds. Right. Uh, but those gotta- 30 seconds are awesome. You got to keep popping those. You know, growing up in Canada, we had this weird gum. It's like every Canadian knows it. Um, and it's a blue gum. Brian would like it or maybe Joe said blue gum. But it tastes like soap. <laughs> yes, I said that correctly. It literally tastes like soap. And you're like, under what circumstances would the inventors think that? Well, I like soap. I like the way it makes me clean. I also like gum. Let's combine these two. It's like an Uber Eats commercial, you know, that you don't eat certain things. But... It was, uh, and it still exists. If you go to a little uh, dipener in uh, Montreal, you'll see this uh, the soap gum. Well, that's funny because the whole story of Wrigley's chewing gum started as a laundry detergent, I want to say, and they were right. giving out, they were giving out samples of gum in the laundry detergent samples or in the laundry detergent, and people were like, "We just like the gum," so they just started buying the gum. So then Wrigley's like, "All right, we're we're a gum company now." Wow, and that's how that all took off. Who knew? Yeah, yeah, quite a surprise, right? Also a surprise, owing $450,000 that a company now owes as they were just trying to throw a birthday party for one of their employees. Yes, uh, the uh, victim in Kentucky who brought the lawsuit actually won, again, almost 
half a million dollars because here's another person who says that they were triggered. Uh, he said they had anxiety disorder that gave him panic attacks and that because his bosses at Gravity Diagnostics in Covington, Kentucky, threw him a party that he did not want uh, that triggered his condition. And also he was later criticized for his reaction to this celebration. And he alleged, again, successfully, that uh, the reaction of his managers to his response to this birthday party resulted in uh, great distress for him. So, Tina, the takeaway is uh, be careful when you throw surprise parties to your coworkers. Yeah, no, I agree with you that, you know, we would probably look at surprise parties and planning them a little bit differently by virtue of this story. I mean, my understanding is that his employer was put on notice of this condition. I think it would have probably been a different result had his employer not known at all about his condition. But not only were they told about it, but um, it got the impression that he sort of reemphasized it and they did it anyway. So, um, you know, I guess be careful when you're trying to throw surprise parties for people, especially when they tell you they don't want them. Brian, $450,000. You and I both deal with uh, some pretty outrageous demands every day and some outrageous verdicts. But, you know, even if there is some liability here, 450 k how do you come up with that number? I don't know. Traumatize me. That's all it takes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I sit in there reading this thing. I thought, wow, no good deed goes unpunished, right? But um, all I could think about is, Thank God they didn't throw the surprise party for the girl who couldn't handle the, the noise of the twin bells. <laughs> right. Yeah. Norma, any thoughts on uh, on this one? 450 it, seems like a lot. Yeah, I think it's a, it, it, it's a lot, but I think it's warranted given that the boss um, knew the condition of his worker um, and still decided to go ahead with the party. Joe, are you a uh, surprise party fan? When's the last time that you uh, were the subject or maybe victim of a surprise party? No, no, I've never, I've never. Actually, I did have a surprise party thrown for me. It was my 27th birthday. It was my golden birthday. And my mom threw it at a bowling alley. And I felt like I was 12 years old again. Uh, but I'm, I'm, it was a good time. I was not a fan of the idea, but then afterwards it ended up being a, a good time. Uh, well, guess what, Joe, uh, Joey producer, cue the lights, cue the music. <laughs> we have a surprise for you, Joe. <laughs> all the gum you could eat. Surprise, Joe. All, all the soap flavored gum I could have. Well, good. I, I could use $450,000. So thank you very much for the surprise party. So that's going to do it. Big thanks to Norma and Brian here on The Legal Grab Bag. Big thanks to all of our other guests earlier here on The Legal Face-Off podcast. For Tina Martini, for Rich Lenkoff, and for all our producers, including the new Joey Christopoulos, I'm Joe Brand. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Legal Face-Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...